Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert Experts on Expert. I'm Ed Young, and I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Monica Old. Monica Old. <laughs> Our guest is Ed Young. Ed Young is so fascinating. Oh, my goodness. This book he wrote is so incredible. It is called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. This was mind-bending. It really was. I've told multiple people about it mm-hmm. since we recorded that it's it's one really worth listening to. It's mind-expanding. Like, I left feeling like I left after we had... After you did mushrooms. No. When we had Brian Cox, who taught us about the space. (laughs) The universe. (laughs) Yes. Ed Young's book has you like really thinking about how much stuff you're missing Uh and how limited reality is for you with this limited five senses. Uh, His previous book was called I Contain Multitudes, which I think won the Pulitzer Prize. Please check out his new book, An Immense World. It's fascinating. And enjoy Ed Young. We are supported by Taco Bell. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is Mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. We are supported by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So make sure you create stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. It's a must for your professional life and so easy to use. Just grab one of their designer-made templates or use the power of AI to generate something in seconds. Then add what you need. You can even pull images, graphs, and more from their massive library. And boom, you're done. I have a few friends who've used it for fun like invitations or itineraries and it does look so professional and nice yeah it's clean and classy and the best part you need zero design experience to get a really high-end looking product out of it and 90 percent of fortune 500 companies trust canva to help them get the job done get your work done and make it look good with canva start designing today at canva.com c-a-n-v-a.com designed for work So the most soundproofed space in our home is the very small random closet space near our bedroom, which is currently a shoe closet. Slash recording studio, or as my wife likes to call it, her studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you'll feel safe in that. We have talked to 55 guests in closets. Yeah. Right, right, right. Closets of America. <laughs> <laughs> closets around the world, in fact. I think we've talked to some people in France. International closets? Yeah. Are you in England? I'm in D.C. 
Mm. Okay, so you now live here. I do live here, yeah. How long have you lived here? I started moving like roughly at the end of 2016, which is a fine time to move to America. I looked around the world and thought, which country would be most welcoming to an immigrant, a journalist, <laughs> a person of color? And specifically, which city in that country would I feel most like calm and at home? <laughs> so I chose DC. Yeah, you're like, I'd like to be surrounded by red hats. I don't care what it says on them. I just love I just red love hats. I love the color. <laughs> I know, right. So you were born in Malaysia and you moved to the UK when you were 13? Yes, that's right. When I was 12. So are you aware of how your thinking may have shifted being in such a radically different place? Yes, a little bit. I mean, there's the shift from London to DC. British and American culture are a little bit different. They're not unrecognizably different. And DC is a pretty good starter city for an exiled European. It's surprisingly European in many ways, even just down to the sight lines, you know, low buildings, no skyscrapers, narrowish roads. It doesn't feel that dissimilar to where I grew up. We were just in London and it takes a minute to recognize like, why does it feel so different? It's a very populated city. And you're like, oh, there's no tall buildings. That's fascinating. I also feel the age of London when I'm in it. The history. Right, the history. We have quite a lot of it. And in America, I always feel like if I look over my shoulder at any minute, I'll see people behind me just slowly cleaning everything. So it looks like just a little new. Everything looks a little bit less time-worn. And I feel that just walking around DC. We have a show that we produce with a Kiwi who got kind of stranded here and is exploring America. And I think we kind of came to a conclusion in that our extreme patriotism could come from that, from the newness. We have no history to point to, so we have to be like, yeah, Disneyland and the this, picking out all <laughs> these new things. That's right. Like, we're going to restore this building to the way it was over 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did that to the observatory here in Los Angeles. They restored it to, like, the 50 sci-fi look that it had, <laughs> which is hilarious. I find it as interesting what drives people to study what they study as the thing they study. And I think a lot of scientists do not ask themselves why they're so driven towards this exact topic. So I majored in anthropology. I felt like there was much more going on in the world than my town was presenting. I was suspicious that there was something less confined, you know. So, of course, I see an intro to anthro and people are living every imaginable way. And I go, yes, tell me this isn't the only thing. So for me, I was always into wildlife, animals, science from like a young age. I don't remember a time when I wasn't really interested in that. I went to a lot of zoos. I watched a lot of nature documentaries. You know, I grew up on a steady diet of David Attenborough. And that's just continued throughout. Weirdly, I've never had animals directly in my life until very recently. We got a pandemic puppy last year. His name is Typo. A corgi? A corgi, that's right, yeah. Those are uniquely stupid dogs. They're just way too close to the ground. The legs are a joke. That's right. <laughs> so that creates some hilarious moments. You know, I write in the book that we like to let Typo have agency on walks. So we like to respect the fact that he's very smell-driven. He loves to sniff. We let him sniff. It's better for him. But 
when your dog is so close to the ground, it's actually very hard to see what he's sniffing and what he's picking up. You're basically dragging a rug across the ground. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, that said, for a small dog, he is remarkably strong. Like when he plays tug with other dogs, he almost always wins. Very low center of gravity, though. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Physics are on his side. <laughs> We've had a couple of those corgi mixes, and they're pretty hilarious dogs. So you got both a bachelor and a master's in zoology from Cambridge and then got a second master's in biochemistry. Right. So it's very obvious to me what would have driven you into zoology. What then got you so curious about biochemistry? Like a lot of people who study science at university, I figured that the way forward was to get into research myself. So I had done the sort of mix of animal behavior and molecular biology at uni and I thought, you know, go into research, get a PhD, create a career in science. And that was a catastrophic mistake because I was very, very bad at it. I think all graduate <laughs> students think that they're bad at it. I genuinely was remarkably bad. And I'm not going to tell you what I studied in my PhD because honestly, I don't care. No one else <laughs> should care. I, it is uniquely boring. And so I stopped after a couple of years and, you know, realized that I was ill-suited to it and that I wanted to do something else. And that something else turned out to be talking about and writing about science. Just explaining it was so much more fulfilling and and rewarding to me than actually doing it and much safer for me and for everyone else concerned. Yeah, it turns out that you are a world-class writer and that you are kind of an ambassador now for science in the way that Neil deGrasse Tyson, like he's got a way of bringing physics to your children. Making it accessible. Accessible. And that's not to say that you're like placating or anything, but you have a unique ability to communicate what is hard to understand. So you won a Pulitzer last year, I guess, 2021. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Is it a trophy? Do you get money? Is there gift cards? What happens (laughs) with the Pulitzer? Well, so one of the Pulitzer categories, you get a gold medal, but that is the category that's never given to individuals. It only goes to specific newsroom and it's the public service one. Everyone else gets money, but you don't get a thing. I don't even have a certificate or a a plaque. One of my friends just won a Pulitzer this year, and I was thinking of getting her coasters with the Pulitzer (laughs) medal printed on them. Sure. I mean, it might be seen as arrogant, but can I suggest maybe just a tasteful tattoo somewhere on your body? (laughs) (laughs) But you make it small enough, right, that people go, what's that? And you go, oh, it's nothing. No, if it's huge, people are like, get over yourself. You want a fucking Pulitzer. But if it's small enough, they've got an ass, and you're like... Oh, just, you know, they don't give you anything when you win the Pulitzer. This could all work. <laughs> oh, my God. Very elegantly. I love it. That's right. It's a next level humble brag. Yes. Yes. It's like, a, ask me about my humble brag. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I just, in fact, even made it better. So you, you get that in dark, dark black and you get it somewhere and then you do a cover up like, oh, so then you cover it. Now it's really obscure. And then you go, oh, my God, I just I'm so embarrassed that I have this thing. <laughs> Oh, that's really good. That's that's like a squared, humble squared. (laughs) The sheer amount of humility on display here. The likes of which have never been seen. (laughs) (laughs) But you won that for covering the pandemic in the Atlantic. That's right. The shit was coming so fast. There was so much (laughs) conflicting info from people that I straight up trust on any other day. For you to have navigated through that and tried to synthesize it, I imagine was a little bit high wire-y at some times. 
very high wire indeed. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, and still is because the pandemic is still ongoing. For all the reasons you said, there was so much conflicting information. It was such a massive crisis that upended every possible aspect of our society at once. And so to write about it, you really had to do pieces that were sort of commensurate in, in scale. I think journalism is very good at telling people what is happening. It is sometimes less good or less practiced at helping them make sense of what is happening, which is a very different skill. And I think something that becomes especially important with a crisis that is this profound in its stakes, its scope, and its uncertainty. But I'm honoured and delighted to have been of service. There's not many professions, I think, where you have an obvious role in the middle of a crisis like this, where you have a specific mission to attend to. And that feels like an important privilege to respect and to do right by. Yeah, almost every time you write on it, you're trying to evaluate being an alarmist versus being naive or not preparing or warning. And that, to me, seemed to be the hardest line for people to hold. And there's been these kind of meta studies, right, how it was represented in media in Europe versus how it was represented here. Pretty dramatic difference. Again, was that something you were kind of conscious of the whole time or was that not a huge concern of yours? It's always a concern. And, you know, you can look at sort of historical examples of how this plays out over time and see cases where people get it wrong or get it right. Our reactions to, say, bird flu look like an overreaction in history. Our reactions to the big West African Ebola outbreak felt like certainly an overreaction in the US, much less so in Africa where it actually happened. And then, of course, with COVID, I think in a lot of the early coverage, people were vastly underreacting. And partly because of exactly that, in epidemics, people tend to fight the last war. So the last time you were trying to caution people against overreaction, you have this tendency to downplay the next thing. If the last time everyone was lax and you were trying to raise an alarm, then you might be more likely to raise an alarm next time. And we're sort of seeing that dynamic happening with the monkeypox outbreak around the world. But with a little bit of experience in this, yes, like trying to get a sense of how big the threat is, like what the, even the near-term future holds is very difficult. But I think trying to gauge between these extremes of panic and laxity is sort of the wrong way of thinking about it. You know, I think what we should best do is just to tell people what is happening to the best of our knowledge, right? You know, give people the facts, show our working, help them to work through sources of uncertainty, show them why those uncertainties exist, when they might be resolved, all of that good stuff. You know, I think if we focus on honest sense making, we go a lot further. What if everything you just said, yes, and then at the end, it was put into some kind of context? Like my example would be as a parent of young kids. I mean, they're really one in 60 million or whatever they are. But when there was a child who got it early on, it became front page of everything. And then you had parents really, in my opinion, overreacting because it wasn't at all. No one put it like, you know, P.S., more kids get hit in the head with a toy wagon and die. Or something that just like right-sized the reality of it. Is there any obligation to do that? Oh, of course. You should provide the best possible information that you have at any given time. And context is a tricky thing in this pandemic. You know, you can weigh up the context against a specific COVID threat against other kinds of illness or health problems. But 
those comparisons are tricky because obviously this is an infectious disease. So you can't just weigh up individual risk in this setting against another. You have to account for the fact that the disease is spread and that the consequences for one individual can exponentially affect entire populations. You have to account for long-term consequences, of which we still don't really fully know about. Yeah. So there's a lot at play here. And I think that it's very easy to go for context in kind of a knee-jerk way without really fully exploring what that means. There's been so much on the pandemic. You know, everyone's writing something and there's so many articles and we were like really inundated. Did you feel, how am I going to write a thing that rises above that people will not be sick of hearing? You know, actually, weirdly, no, this was never a problem, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, as an industry, we're very good at telling people what is happening. We're much less good at helping them make sense of it. So that genre of a big piece that grounds everyone and says, this is where we are, this is where we're going. A piece that tries to second guess the questions that people are asking even before they're asking them. How is this going to end? Why is this so confusing? How did it come to this? Those pieces were very few and far between. And I think that's why the work that I and others did that tried to answer those questions, the work that someone described as the journalism of evidence-based imagination, was rare enough to be meaningful, but also to be slightly competition-proof. It wasn't the case that there were like a million pieces of this kind being written. And now, in year two and three, I've been increasingly trying to write pieces about the groups of people who were left behind by the pandemic, the people who feel marginalized and ignored while most of society goes back to normal. So people who lost loved ones to COVID, immunocompromised people, healthcare workers, long haulers. But almost by definition, if you write about people who feel neglected, there aren't a lot of people doing that, which is why they feel neglected. If you're just writing a piece that here's what Tony Fauci has to say about the pandemic or cases are rising again, then yeah, like there's a million pieces like that. But I think if you actually try and do the hard work of journalism, like helping people to make sense of what is happening, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, all of that good stuff, there could always be more of that work. And I think if you do that work, it will find an audience. Mm. Okay, you have a wildly successful book before An Immense World, the one we're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. called I Contain Multitudes, which is a microbe's eye view of the world. And now when I see An Immense World, my conclusion is I think you're fascinated with what we're missing, what we're not seeing. Yep, that's exactly it. I too am a little obsessed with what we're missing. Maybe it'd be easier to say, are you interested in reality? Like, is that something that you like to think about, like to question, like to poke at? Oh, very much so. I think that's exactly the thematic tissue that connects the two books. Biology has always been my deepest love. And I think the most interesting things about the world around us are the ones that we just aren't privy to because of the trappings of our humanity, of our senses, the way we think of even just like our scale and size. We miss a lot of what's around us. So the first book was about the organisms that we miss, the little microbes that are too small for us to see, but that's still profoundly influence our lives. And this book is about the sensory information that we miss, the sights and smells and textures that other animals can tap into that we cannot. 
So what we miss is part of it, but the other thread that's the sort of flip of that is when we pay attention to these things, when we have our attention drawn to them, our sense of the world just becomes grander and more magical and more magnificent. You know, we learn so much about what's cool about life around us that we wouldn't otherwise understand. This is perfect timing for this interview because I was sitting with my friend Amy on Sunday and we were having a pretty long, it shocked me how long you can talk about this. I encourage anyone to try it was, would you rather lose your sight or your hearing? <laughs> and more specifically, we narrowed it down to you're either born missing one or the other. So it's not like you had it and lost it. So, you know, you start really going through what you're getting out of seeing the world so much, you know, would you not want to see your children? Would you not want to see a mountain, a sunset, all this stuff? And then, of course, for me, my great hobby in life is talking, is communicating. So, oh, man, I really enjoy that. I like to be able to hear other people talk and I like to hear all the sounds of life. And of course, at the end of this, we both were theorizing like, now just imagine there's like a sixth and a seventh and an eighth way to consume reality around us that we don't even know we're missing. That is this powerful as sight or as powerful as hearing is to us. And then recognizing that a lot of animals are picking up a different dimension that we're not privy to is just kind of a fun, magical thought. You start the book with this great thing. I would call it a misleading comedy. It's a misdirect. <laughs> so it starts with, you know, imagine there's an elephant in a gym. Of course, my mind goes to, oh, it's going to be the old proverb of the five people feeling the elephant in the dark and trying to describe it. You know that one, oh, right, yeah, Monica? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. One guy's holding its tail. Oh, it's long and skinny. Yeah. You know, whatever the hell the thing is. We'll revisit it in the fact check. <laughs> <laughs> it's roughly like that. Yeah, but your setup is, okay, so there's a gal, Jessica maybe is her name, I think. Rebecca. Rebecca. Was that a nod to a loved one? That's my best friend. There we go. That's An Easter fun. egg within a misdirect. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. And then he starts listing other animals that are in there. There's a rattlesnake. There's an owl. There's... Wait, in a room and it's dark? It's a gym. Just, oh. You're imagining this, right? Okay. It's a hypothetical space. I did not, in fact, gather all of these animals. That would have been an amazing feat of reporting, but no, it's, <laughs> a, it's a hypothetical space for reasons that we'll get into, not least of which are logistic ones. Well, I was just going to say you'd be immediately aware of how challenging Noah's job was. If you just tried to get those <laughs> right. nine animals in the gym. <laughs> so imagine a gym in which are an elephant, a rattlesnake, a bat, uh, I think it was a bumblebee, a rat, an owl, a spider, and Rebecca, a human. And a mouse. Do you say a mouse? And yes, there's a mouse, right. So it just sort of walks this hypothetical sense of what all of these animals would experience of each other. So, you know, the mouse is putting out these ultrasonic squeaks, which are too high pitched for the human to hear, but the bat can hear because its hearing goes up to that level. And the elephant can't, but it's producing these infrasonic low pitched rumbles that the human can hear, but the bat and the mouse probably can't. The bee is looking at a flower in the room and can see this ultraviolet bullseye at its center to the human the flower is yellow to, you know, the dog. There's also a dog in the room. The colors are completely different too. Greens and reds don't exist. It's just yellows and blues. So it's really about trying to understand that even if all these creatures share the same space, they are going to be experiencing reality, the space and each other in completely different ways. Yeah. There'll be stuff that some of the creatures can sense, some of the others can't. 
Everyone is different. The human is not necessarily better than any of the others. Sharper eyes, but slightly narrower range of color vision than the bird in the room. Hears slightly different pitches than the elephant or the bat. Can't echolocate like the bat can. Can't sense heat like the rattlesnake can. So it's this idea that, you know, you could all be in the same physical space. Your experience of that space is going to be vastly different. And the reason why the room is hypothetical, rather than me trying to visit a lab where I'm looking at animals behaving differently is that imagination is the single most powerful requisite for thinking about the senses of other animals. Because science can get us some way, right? A scientist can tell me what a bat is doing in any given time. You can look at the brain of a rattlesnake and see what it's doing when it senses a mouse. But that can't give you the conscious subjective experience of being inside another animal. Really think about what the animal is experiencing when it senses the world. So there's always going to be this chasm between our conscious experience and that of another creature. And that chasm can only be bridged by acts of imagination. They always need a little bit of a leap at the end. And I think the message is you're going to need to put some effort in to start thinking about all this, but it's going to be worthwhile because it's like magical and fun. I just want to read this because your writing so beautiful. It says, these seven creatures share the same physical space, but experience it in wildly and wondrously different ways. The same is true for billions of other animal species on the planet and the countless individuals within those species. Earth teems with sights and textures, sounds and vibrations, smells and tastes, electric and magnetic fields, but every animal can only tap into a small fraction of reality's fullness. Each is enclosed within its own unique sensory bubble, perceiving but a tiny sliver of an immense world. I like the thought of a sensory bubble. But also that's people too. That could literally be seven different people with seven different backgrounds in a room as well. Absolutely. Every person senses slightly differently. You know, if you've had arguments about whether something tastes good or what something smells like, you know, what color is this? In my workplace at the Atlantic, at some point, someone asked whether a tennis ball is yellow or green. And it caused like <laughs> a days long civil war <laughs> in our newsroom of learned, serious, educated people. <laughs> I've never seen a groom full of journalists collapse into such furious outrage with each other. <laughs> and that's really saying something. So yeah, people are also different. Like within any one species, there are different ways of experiencing the world. And that's sort of the point, right? It's hard enough to think about what another person is experiencing, let alone what a platypus or an elephant or a spider is experiencing. So right when I started reading it, I was like, oh, I'm going to read this book out loud to my girls who are seven and nine. I think this would be an incredible book to read aloud to your kids. Mm -hmm. It's a very enchanting entrance to this world. And first of all, I want to label what we just talked about because I love the word. Do you say umwelt or umwelt? Umwelt. Okay, so that's a German zoologist came up with that term? Yeah, so a man named, and I always butcher his name, but it's Jakob von Uxkull. Well, I'm so shocked you butcher it. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> it's probably completely wrong. My apologies for any native German speakers here, but that guy who in my head for a long time was just JVU because I couldn't pronounce his name, pioneered this concept, this Umwelt concept. And for that, I've come to say to people, it's like Umbop, but slightly different. <laughs> so yeah, the Umwelt concept, the word comes from the German word for environment. 
But Vanuxical didn't mean it as an environment like an animal's surroundings, not the physical space around its body. He meant that sensory bubble, the part of that environment that the animal can tap into, the specific sets of sights and sounds and smells that it has access to and that another animal might not. You said this book is about animals for animals. Like, I think there's a tendency for us to think of ourselves as the finish line of evolution. You know, we start as an amoeba, then an invertebrate, then mammals, and then ultimately we're the grand mammal of all. And even myself, even though I recognize evolution hasn't stopped at any one of those places along the way, everyone's continued to branch forward. There is some sense to think that we're at the top or what they have is vestigial, you know, or we have some vestigial of that, but we don't use, you know, whatever. We're the most evolved. Exactly. So if you wouldn't mind speaking on that, just like our kind of own egocentrism when we think about animals and their experience. Yeah, of course. I mean, if I ask you to think about an image that summarizes evolution, I think most people would think the thing with you have an ape and then it's walking to the right and it slowly gets more upright and then it's a human, right? So the iconography around this topic, it has this sense of progression and increasing advancement. But of course, that's not what evolution is. What evolution is very good at doing is generating diversity. And like I say in the introduction, An Immense World is a book about diversity, not about superiority, for a few reasons. Firstly, nothing has it all. So nothing can sense everything and nothing needs to. Humans have really good eyesight. Our eyes are among the most acute, like the sharpest in the animal kingdom, except possibly for birds of prey. It's not even so much that our eyeballs themselves are the top notch, but we commit so much brain power to processing the information that the eyes are getting as well. Isn't that part of it? Bit of both, yeah, for sure. The hardware is great and all the processing, like all the software is also excellent. But in eyes alone, there is always a trade-off between resolution, so sharpness, and sensitivity, so how well it works in the dark. Mm. Animal with super sharp eyes, like a human or an eagle, is roughly useless at night. Whereas an animal that has really good night vision is going to struggle with, you know, how many pixels its image has. So there's always going to be trade-off. And then there's trade-offs between the other senses. Humans, great sense of touch, super sensitive fingertips, really good sharp eyes. But, you know, our sense of smell is much less good than, say, a dog's or an elephant. So we use it in different ways. And then there are senses that we don't have. We can't sense electric fields like an electric eel can. We can't sense magnetic fields like even, you know, any of the songbirds outside my window right now have access to. Nothing can sense everything. Evolution tailors our senses to our own needs. And so every animal is left with just a sliver. It's not like the human slice of reality is bigger than anything else's. It's just different. What is special about people is that we, I think, are the only species that can think about these other sensory worlds. So in that hypothetical room, right, the elephant doesn't know what the rattlesnake is thinking. The rattlesnake doesn't know what the bat is thinking. The human, Rebecca, my friend, also doesn't, but is also the only creature that can even start asking that question, that can start making that leap of imagination and think, what are all these other creatures experiencing? And so that act, the animating idea of the book, is a truly profoundly human thing to be able to do. I talk about it as a gift, and I think that one that we should really cherish and make use of. Right. We are also unique in the fact that we are going to, and have to some extent, invent tools that will allow us to experience what they're experiencing. That's also phenomenal, right? Absolutely. Most of the discoveries that I write about in the book came about 
because we had technological advancements, you know, we have an ultrasound detector that can understand the noises that a bat is making that we can't hear. You know, we have night vision goggles that can be used to study animals behaving in the dark. Technology is important, but like I said, technology only gets us a certain way. And that's why you always need this sort of fusion of technology with our innate creativity and our imaginative skill to really start understanding what it is animals are actually experiencing. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be Rob specific. and I received some texts Yeah, I was morning. locked out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, Talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Mm. Myrtle Beach, I have so much nostalgia. Me too. I did a spring break in Myrtle Beach. Yes. Did you guys used to go there from Georgia? Yeah. It Mm. was a very common beach destination. Ugh. Long sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline to enjoy. The beach truly is where your best self comes out. Combine that with the irresistible aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants, and you've got yourself the perfect vacation. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. That's visitmyrtlebeach.com.
You say in the past we've basically, and I'm going to quote you, reverse engineer animal senses to create new technologies. Lobster eyes have inspired space telescopes. The ears of a parasitic fly have influenced hearing aids. And military sonar has been honed by work on dolphin sonar. So, yeah, they seem to have always conventionally fulfilled a role that we wanted. Like it had an end game and an end goal always of somehow borrowing from what they've mastered so we can enjoy it ourselves. Totally. And this is called biomimicry, taking technological inspiration from the bodies and behavior of animals. And look, I'm fascinated by that, too. I've written about that before. It's a totally legit area of science. But it's not what I'm interested in here. I think a lot of research on animals, a lot of our interest in animals, becomes like kind of a self-serving thing. So it's either they're inspiring technology or a lot of lab creatures from fruit flies to rats and mice get seen as like proxies for us. They're model organisms that tell us more about our own biology. And it's always about us as the endpoint. And Immense World is a book about trying to appreciate animals for themselves, trying to understand that they are the endpoint, that the ways in which they experience the world are glorious to think about in their own right, even if all we get out of it is understanding them better. Mm. I think that's part of it, but I think for people who want a little bit more of a transactional thing here, I think that what that gives us is a newfound appreciation for the world around us. You know, I talk about how thinking about the senses of other animals shows you flickers of the magical and the mundane and the extraordinary in the everyday. So I'll give you like a very personal example of that. I have typo. We go for three walks every day. We're always walking around exactly the same streets and buildings, you know, just same neighborhood, the same places that I've walked past thousands of times. And that to me, frankly, are boring, right? Like I'm walking down the streets myself and mostly off in my head or looking at my phone or whatever. But those streets to typos nose change on a daily, maybe hourly basis. We can walk along and he will be trundling along quite happily on his short, ridiculous legs. And then suddenly <laughs> he'll grind to a halt and start sniffing a patch of pavement that looks completely identical to every other patch of pavement. And there's something there that grabbed his attention. You know, it's spring now, new plants are blossoming everywhere. He'll explore all the new growth with just the utmost delicacy. He'll sniff every pea patch that another dog has visited. Every time he does that, he probably knows like which of his neighborhood friends has been that way, what their condition is, what they've been up to. To me, watching that, it's like me screaming scrolling through my Instagram feed. It's like me catching up in social media. That's what a sniffwalk is to typo. Yeah, the world is novel and ever-changing if you're led by your nose. And profoundly social, even if there's no one there. Yeah, it's like reading a gossip trade to smell those urine patches. There have been moments where I'm looking at Twitter while he's sniffing on a walk, and I'm just really aware now that those are the same things. (laughs) Those are two very different versions of the same kind of activity. So that's what it gives me. It shows me that the world around me that I think is static and boring is actually always changing and interesting. It's always renewing itself. And I might not pay attention to it. I might not be able to tap into that myself, but I can by looking at what he does. There's something very beautiful about that. It's like an antidote to the mundanity of everyday life. Yeah. You put out Henry Beston quote in here that's really cool, referring to animals. They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. I should not go into reading nice quotes professionally because I'm a very (laughs) bad reader. 
But trust me, when I read that, I thought, what a beautiful way to look at them. It's so good, isn't it? I mean, that's what I was hoping to do with this book, too. This topic is so full of wonder and joy. The biology is fascinating. What it tells you about the world is profound. And I think the writing needs to live up to the magical promise of the topic. Yeah, it's very poetic. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I definitely need to read it. You do, because you have zero empathy well, for... Well, don't yeah. say that. <laughs> well, on the spectrum. On the, well, you and I are on the same end of the spectrum. Yeah. I at least loved primates, you know. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't have that much of an affection. It wasn't imprinted on me. But this is making me really excited about them. Well, can I tell you some of my favorite ones? I'm just going to hit you with, like, the ones I carry around. One is, and I just read this one the other night, reading about sharks with Lincoln. Our sense of smell, to talk about how terrible ours is. A shark can smell blood in the water from three miles away. I don't even know how scents move through water. That begs this huge physics question on top of that. Or the fact that we know about the elephants communicating subsonically over the course of 10 miles on the Serengeti and that we figured that out because a woman was studying birds and played her recording back at the wrong speed. And so now we could hear all these sounds we couldn't previously hear, like the way we A, discover this stuff and B, what they're capable of is boggling. And I'm just jealous, I think. <laughs> Do you want to object to either of those examples? I saw you squinting as if you were like, well, that's kind of right. No, no, it's <laughs> The shark thing is interesting because I was going to write about sharks in the smell chapter because everyone talks about the blood thing. Turns out that a shark's sense of smell is still very good, but also not that special compared to a lot of fish. So A lot of fish smell super well. Salmon use their sense of smell to guide them back to the rivers where they were originally born. That's one of the ways in which they find their way back home and then spawn at exactly the right place. Sharks are certainly very cool and they do a lot of incredible sensory things. So one of the truly amazing things that they do is that they can sense the electric fields of their prey. So An animal can bury itself in sand. It can stay completely still. It can make no noise. But just through the very act of living, it produces small electric fields around it, which it cannot turn off. And a shark can sense that. It's only a very close range sense. It's not like you can do it from across a swimming pool, but it can if it was swimming, say, you know, an arm's length above. And can I ask quickly, how specific is this electromagnetic field print? Is there one specific to seals, or it's a generalized electrical activity? It's a really good question. I think it's generalized. It would be interesting to see if sharks can tell the difference, but some sharks will bite buried undersea cables because they give off electric fields. Ah. So I don't think it's like a shark is swimming along and thinking, ooh, Flounder. Like a UPC code? (laughs) It's not like reading off a menu. (laughs) Hammerhead sharks, right? That weird head that looks very much like a metal detector is basically a metal detector. It spans the reach of the shark's electric sense to cover a larger area so it can scan more of the seafloor as it's swimming along. Oh, Oh, boy. So it's imaginable that we could create a suit that would somehow protect us from the electric for giving off the electrical charge, like a, some kind of an insulative suit. suit that would neutralize us. 
I mean, the thing is, we don't need to worry about it because like, most shark attacks are not to do with this. Most shark attacks are mistaken identity. Like, first, they're super rare. Secondly, a lot of it happens because from below, a human on a surfboard has the same silhouette as a seal. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't need some kind of special Iron Man, you know. <laughs> also, I'm doing the thing we swore we weren't going to do, which it's is hard. like make it all about us. It's I know, really it really hard. is. We're so <laughs> egomaniacal as humans. <laughs> Okay, the birds and the magnetic field of Earth. Oh, yes. Can you please explain what happens? Do they have a different organ? Yes. It is hard to explain what exactly happens because scientists are themselves not completely sure. The magnetic sense exists in a large number of animals. The songbirds have it, sea turtles have it, a bunch of other things have it. But it is by far the hardest sense to study. It is the only one where we don't know what the sense organ is or even what the receptors are. And by receptors, so vision works with my eyes. Pretty obvious. In my eyes, there's a retina. In the retina, there are special cells that detect light. So that's the receptors. We know what they are. Don't know that for the magnetic sense. And the reason for that is the magnetic field penetrates through flesh. So it goes through our bodies. So unlike light or sound or most of the other things we sense, you don't need a hole in your body to let it in, and you don't need the sense organ to be on the surface. The sense organ could be anywhere, could be in my butt, could be in the back of my head, could be distributed throughout my entire body. So as like one scientist told me, it could be like finding a needle in a haystack made of needles. I'm sure they would have already thought of this, but how about like just the normal levels of iron in your blood being pulled in some direction that is somehow sensed in your cardiovascular system? Like, could it even be in its totality? The iron in your blood is not magnetic like that. So, you know, in the X-Men comics, when Magneto paralyzes people by manipulating the iron in their blood does not work. Oh, bummer. Okay. It would not actually work in real life. But there are at least three different possibilities for how animals sense magnetic fields. And two are ridiculously complicated. But you've kind of hit on the third, which is the easiest to explain, which is that there is a mineral called magnetite, which is magnetic. It's an iron mineral. And it exists in the cells of living things, like some bacteria, some animals. And you can imagine that it basically acts like a little compass needle. There's a little needle inside your cells. As you turn, the needle turns and it tugs on something, something that then generates an electric signal in your nervous system. That is one possible way that a magnetic sense could work. But actually trying to identify these cells has been super hard. People have tried, people have said that they found them in pigeons and other animals. It's often turned out to be not true. There's a huge amount of controversy in this because if I asked you, explain how magnets work, it's really hard, right? Like I'm a professional science writer and I would struggle to explain to you how magnets work. So magnetism is so counterintuitive that it's very hard for us to explain. It's very hard for us to imagine what that would feel like to another animal. One of the theories is that there's some weird chemical reaction that goes on in its eyes that's magnetically sensitive. And it means that maybe the bird sees the magnetic field. Like mm. maybe there's an overlay over its vision and maybe north is like a bit darker or a bit brighter. Or like the impulse for things to go towards the light. Maybe it's yet a different version of light through the eyes that are being compelled to fly towards. Right, right. It's like a heads up display, something on the windshield of your car. Maybe it's something like that, but maybe not. Maybe it's just a feeling. An intuition. An intuition, right. So 
That's why it's so difficult. But earlier, you know, you said that one of the cool things about this area is that scientists often discover stuff in completely unexpected ways. And one of the ways in which we learned that animals have this magnetic sense is when it comes time to migrate, small songbirds exhibit this thing called Zugenruhe, this German word for migration anxiety. They get super restless. They're really like itching to go. They have mm. somewhere to be and they want to get there. Like two days before spring break for a teenager. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, right, right. fuck, let's go Thursday. Pacing around your roof, like, come on. But it turns out they know the way because if you put them in a cage, even if they can't see any landmarks or anything, they'll start hopping in the same direction. And so you see a bird doing that and go, huh, that's weird. And then you start doing experiments that show exactly how it works. A lot of sensors were discovered because people saw animals doing things that just didn't seem possible. You know, a bat flying through a completely dark room without bumping into anything. An electric fish swimming backwards along its tank and then up the wall of its tank without hitting that wall. How is it doing that? Those are the first clues that cue people into these other sensory worlds that are all around us. I think now might be a good time to introduce the concept of just light and light as we understand it. And my understanding comes from an astronomy class 24 years ago, so bear with me. But if we just look at light and the wavelengths are measured, we're seeing an area of that spectrum between like 7,000 angstroms and 4,000 angstroms, which is the tiniest sliver of how many wavelengths there are of light. And we think of light as only being the things we're seeing between those two very specific wavelengths. Obviously, there's animals that are seen well beyond this spectrum of light we're seeing, whether it's ultraviolet or whether it's infrared, and then probably beyond. Right, so we're seeing between violet at 400 nanometers and red at 700 nanometers. And the whole electromagnetic spectrum was like the length of my arm. That would probably be like a little bit of fingernail. It's tiny. Oh my God. <laughs> but there are other animals that can see colors that we can't see. It used to be thought that the first animals that were known to see ultraviolet were ants. And then it used to be thought like, okay, so animals can see this, it's super rare. Then scientists just kept on finding more and more creatures that can see ultraviolet. And now we know that most animals that can see color can see ultraviolet. We're rare in that, we are the mm. exception. And when you look at the world through ultraviolet, things look very different. So a lot of flowers that we think are uniform in color, like a sunflower just looks yellow to us, have all these bright ultraviolet patterns to them. A sunflower oh. has like this ultraviolet so bullseye jealous. in the middle. I am too. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like the world of Navi and Avatar. It's kind of like being on shrooms. Yes, the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, we were just talking about shrooms. Someone described this book to me the other day as being very trippy. I think that's exactly right. So bird feathers, right? Bird feathers have a lot of ultraviolet in them often. Many birds, whether males and females look exactly the same to us, look very different to each other because they can see ultraviolet. Birds are a super interesting case because we have three classes of light sensing cells in our eyes, sensitive to red, green, and blue. Right? That defines the range of colors that we can see. And by mixing the signals from those three classes, we see all the colors that we can see, the whole rainbow, all the Pantones in your DIY shop, all of that. Birds have a fourth. They also have ultraviolet. And that doesn't mean that their color vision is 
hours, but just extended a little bit in the spectrum, it means that they have a whole other dimension of colors that we cannot see. It's multiplicative. It's like they can see a yeah. hundred times more colors we can see. They're quantum. It's like if you think of a computer as being binary, they're like they've already achieved quantum color. Right, right. I can imagine what my dog sees because he sees fewer colors, right? His rainbow goes from like yellow to blue. He doesn't see the reds, he doesn't see the purples, his greens look more like whites and greys, so I can recolor the world to look like how he sees. But I cannot recolor the world to look like what a bird sees, because the bird sees way more colors. So he sees like a hundred times more colors. Four into three won't go. Which again is why imagination is so important. Look at the side of the window. The sparrow that I walk past, the most common, most boring birds out there are seeing this massive range of colors that we can't see, that we don't even have names for. And I think that's incredible. Yeah, It's really hard to think about that. It is, because it's hard to even use your imagination, because when you use your imagination, you're using from the colors your three you know. Ingredients. Yeah, you're still yep, using right. from a limited palette. And even if one were to try to illustrate one, it you would can't. still file <laughs> into, yes. Oh. Right. So I'll give you another example. So vision is good for this kind of exercise, because everyone here who has sight knows what it's like, you know, it's very familiar. It's, we're not talking about like magnetoreception or something completely alien. We have a basis for it. But think about what a bird sees. So humans have eyes, mostly two eyes, forward facing. So when we walk ahead, our visual world is in front of us and moves towards us. But a bird has eyes on the sides of its head, which means it has close to wraparound vision. Like some have completely wraparound vision, but it will see to the sides and a little bit behind. So a bird's visual world surrounds it. And when the bird is walking forward, parts of that visual world will go towards it and other parts will move away from it. And there's no overlap, so they're not judging any depth. Right. I can look behind me, I can see what the world behind me is like, but I can't imagine what it's like to have completely wraparound vision. And there's no way of giving me that. You can wear the fanciest virtual reality goggles you like, but you still can't give me the sense of seeing out the back of my head, right? <laughs> and that's really trippy. Well, also you happen to be using the sense that we have the best of. That's the irony of it. It's like, look how limited we are in comprehending what we're not seeing. And yet our nose is like a hundredth as powerful as our eyes, or maybe more. I don't even know what the factor yeah. is. Ugh. Like you're using our best sense to point out what little we see. Exactly. Even for vision, you know, there are animals which much faster vision, much slower vision, more acute vision, animals that can see in the darkest of nights as if they were moving around in bright sunlight. The field of vision stuff, like you know, see around your head, right? A duck sitting on the pond can probably see the entirety of the sky without having to move. A heron standing still can probably see the fish swimming between its legs. Monica's getting irritated. <laughs> I'm feeling great. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're getting FOMO, <laughs> really bad FOMO. <laughs> right. And one of the things that makes the book trippy is it makes you think about things that you thought you really understood, things that were so obvious you would never question them. And it makes you think, is that right? There's a whole chapter about heat 
and about how animals sense temperature. And the thing is that we have neurons all over our bodies that can sense heat and that can sense cold and that have different thresholds for what you find painfully hot, what you find painfully cold. In every animal, those thresholds are set differently depending on the conditions those animals experience. So in a camel that lives in the baking desert isn't sitting there just going, oh God, it's miserable <laughs> and hot. Like, it's right. Fine, because its heat sensors are calibrated at a different level. 136, they're like, okay, we need to right. find shade. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And there's loads of animals, like there's a lot of fish that have no sense of painful cold, that do not understand what it is like to be painfully cold. Fish that live in the Arctic aren't sitting in the ocean going, oh God, it's so cold. They're literally chill with it. So the last person who said this book's really stupid was like, yeah, so let me ask you this question. Is ice cold? Mm. Right, like objectively, is it cold? Right, and the answer is it's cold to us, yeah. but it's not necessarily cold to other animals. But it is freezing. It is frozen. Yeah. yeah, in physics, it's a radar of speed, truly. It's frozen by definition, right. but uh -huh. is it cold? Exactly, Does it yeah. feel cold? And the answer for a lot of animals is going to be no. But that question, is ice cold, is the most ludicrous question. I can't believe I'm asking it out loud, <laughs> let alone that I'm asking it out loud and that the answer could conceivably be no. That's incredible, but weirdly, the antithesis of that must be true, though. Fire's hot. Fire is hot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's anchor ourselves in that fire okay, is hot. Okay, thank God we can all connect on one thing. Fire is absolutely hot because no animal's happy about fire. No. Okay. They might be more tolerant of some heat. We could make a good riddle out of that. We could. There is a good riddle to be had. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert. If you dare. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com slash running to learn more. We are supported by Canva. Good presentations take time. Or they used to, because now you have Canva to help you make amazing slides fast. I'm talking like seconds, thanks to the power of AI in Canva presentations. All you have to do is start with a prompt like a sales presentation for a tech company. Then sit back and let Canva work its magic. It's incredible what AI is doing. I'm seeing all kinds of image generated. I follow I these architectural websites that it's all AI generated. It's just mind blowing what it comes up with. You just tell it what you want and it'll do it. Boom. It's a time saver and it's easy for any department to use. And it's great for companies of any size. Even Fortune 500 companies rely on Canva. Finish your work faster and generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. 
It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. So in the heat chapter, I write about these beetles that actually fly towards fire. They can sense sources of heat from a great distance, intense sources of heat, and they head towards fire because they lay their eggs in charred bark. A burnt forest has no predators, the trees are burnt to shit, so they have like few defenses. So it's very easy for the beetles to lay eggs in there, the eggs are hatched into grubs, the grubs eat the trees. Actually, a burnt forest is kind of like an Eden for them, and their senses, being able to detect infrared very, very sensitively at a great distance, help them find fires. They also have sex with each other amid the fires, which has to be like one of the most dramatic oh romantic well, it's very romantic we kind of take that more like water cabin play. fireplace sure sure so they take it to the extreme they're in the fireplace it's hot literally it's hot sex yeah, it's so hot <laughs> oh when they see heat is it part of their tactile like us is it part of the feeling of their skin or is that something they see when they can detect heat so it varies. Usually it's much like us. So it gets hot. Our skin feels hot. We sort of feel it as a whole body thing. That's usually what happens. But there are some animals that detect, but that's like just detecting ambient heat, right? So I am sitting here and I have a sense of how warm the room is where I currently am. But there are definitely creatures that can sense heat sources from a distance. So the beetles are one of them. There are a lot of parasites that do this. For those that suck blood, being able to detect heat from distance is a great skill because blood is hot. So mm -hmm. vampire bats can do this, ticks can do this, mosquitoes can do this. But probably the animals that are best at detecting heat from a distance that are most famous for it are rattlesnakes and other pit vipers. And there, there does seem to be a connection to vision. So the snakes have these two pits on their snouts that look like a pair of extra nostrils. It's gross, yes, I can see them perfectly in my mind. <laughs> and those pits detect infrared radiations. They can detect heat from a distance. So a rattlesnake in complete darkness can sense a mouse scurrying in front of it. It can strike the mouse with enough accuracy to first hit it and then even hit it in exactly the right place. So their heat sense is kind of extraordinary. Really quick, infrared is a wavelength though, right? So they're detecting light at that point? Sort of, right. So a hot object, the molecules in that hot object will vibrate faster. It will give off infrared radiation. Uh -huh. That radiation will then heat up objects that it hits. So that's why if you sit next to a fire, you feel hot. It's because the infrared radiation for the fire is sort of jiggling the molecules like of your body closer to it. So the rattlesnake sort of does this, but it just has exquisitely sensitive membrane in its pits that can detect the much fainter radiation given off by, say, a warm mouse rather than a raging fire. What's weird about it is that the pits have connections that seem to integrate with the connections from the snake's eyes and they go to a similar part of the brain. So some scientists think that actually this heat sense is just an extension of vision. So maybe infrared is just another kind of color that the snakes can see. 
Can I just ask something really quick? Just like we try to think of ourselves, this is what mushrooms accomplishes, right? Is it breaks down the module sense of self and module sense of all the beings. And I definitely think we have a module sense of senses, which is like they're completely different things. They handle different things, but there's a world in which they're fused. They work in tandem. They're not different, right? I mean, this might be a case of that where it's not compartmentalized in the way we think of it. Right. So the reason why we think about five senses and five five distinct senses is Aristotle. So that classification scheme goes back to him. But it's a complicated classification scheme. It misses a bunch of senses that other animals have, misses some that we have. It doesn't include the ones that tell us about the position of our bodies, for example. It's proprioception. Ooh, proprioception. Yeah, right. But it also suggests that the senses can be separated in this neat way. And so firstly, even with humans, there are people with synesthesia, for example, where the senses meld together. So some people have a sense of smelling colors or some words can evoke like scent smells or taste. And numbers. Right, right. This cross-pollination between the senses. And then for other animals, it's likely that many of them are fusing senses that we think of as separate into the same thing. And octopus's suckers has touch senses and taste senses. And I wouldn't be surprised if those two things things merge into the same thing. So it has a sense of touch taste. You know, it has like the taste of a shape or the (sighs) feel of a taste. Well, we get a little hint of that, right? Like we love texture in food. It's not just the taste. If you put a Snickers bar, you put it on a marshmallow, it has all the exact same flavors. It's going to be a different experience because you are combining and conflating the texture of the thing and the sensory and then the taste. Taste and smell for humans are very interconnected. Well, that's the same thing. Olfactory. (laughs) Most of what we think of as taste is really smell. Most flavor is really smell. It's why when you get a cold, food doesn't taste anything. Like the taste is basic. It's just sweet, sour, salt, savory, and bitter. Umami. Well, don't they say umami? Yeah, that's the newest one. Umami is the savory one. Yeah. But all the richness we think of as being linked to taste is really smell. Ed, we just both got embarrassed. (laughs) I I don't know if you can see it on our faces, but... (laughs) We don't know anything. What happened is first Monica got embarrassed about taste and smell, and then I got embarrassed that Umami... (laughs) Mommy's just savory. (laughs) (laughs) We're just so stupid. Oh, I don't know. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. I mean, Ed's a goddamn Pulitzer Prize winner. I I mean, he has nothing to show for it, but he is a Pulitzer Prize winning science. Maybe we could win one of those gold medals. Because having people like Ed on, we're doing a service. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. We're even like one step below the Atlantic as far as disseminating <laughs> good science. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but super <laughs> humble. <Yeah>. Super, super <laughs> humble, as we established earlier. That's why you want to humbly. Okay, so we interrupted you, but I just wanted to point out what happened in real life over here. If you felt us get disconnected Senses. for a second, it's because we were embarrassed, but please. Okay, so, you know, with the rattlesnakes, maybe the heat sense is sort of an offshoot or a part of vision. A platypus, that famous duck bill that a platypus has, has electrosenses, a bit like a shark, and touch senses. But are those different? Some people have argued that the platypus might just have one single sense of electro-touch where the electric sensations it's getting just get integrated with what it feels, which is impossible to imagine because we firstly don't even have half of that, let alone know how to put that together. 
So yeah, firstly, it's not just five senses. There's loads of possible ones. They all connect to each other in really interesting ways. And I think that's one of the things I hope to do with the book. The penultimate chapter is exactly about this business of uniting the senses into a single feeling, like a single conscious perception and what that might be like. And a lot of scientists who study this tend to focus on one sense at a time. You, know, you get like vision scientists or factory scientists. But no creature is ever relying just on one sense at a time. Even the ones that are amazing. Shark has great sense of smell, but also uses its electric sense, its eyes, its lateral line. It's got loads of stuff and all animals are like this. You know, if it's hard enough to imagine what it's like to see the world through like the eyes of a duck. Just imagine what it's like to put all of the other bits of information together. Yes. Oh, God, yes. You're getting a smell and you can actually see everywhere around you. All right, I want to hit just rapid fire some of the tastier little elements that are promised in this book that would fascinate people and have them running out to their long shutdown borders and then, of course, ordering it once they realize that. Borders? Borders Barnes books. Noble. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> Take your pick of brick and mortar from our history. It's been a long pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Tell me how this works. Dogs can tell identical twins apart by <gasps> smell. Monica. No. Yeah. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> There's a lot of party tricks that dogs are good at. So the twins thing is one of them. They've been able to tell the direction a person's been walking in by sniffing their footsteps. There are dogs that can detect drugs, most famously, but some scientists have trained dogs to sniff out whale poop so that they can study whales. They'll have a service dog with a pair of goggles sitting at the front of a boat, like going, no. oh my God. Whales that way. Is there any truth to them smelling cancer? Yeah, they've definitely been able to do that in lab studies. Whether you can actually use that as a screening tool, I kind of doubt it, but they have very good noses and they have been able to do stuff like that in lab studies. Yeah. Wow. 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 Okay. Whales songs can traverse entire oceans. Yeah. Bullshit. Bullshit, Ed. Bull fucking <laughs> you know, shit. This is exactly what people said to the scientist Roger Payne, who first suggested this in the 1970s. That reaction is very legit, but it turns out <laughs> they can. They produce the same kind of low infrasonic calls that elephants make. And those calls travel over long distances, even in the air, but especially so in the water. So whale songs very much can travel over long distances. What's a long distance? We're saying 20,000 miles? I'm saying across the Atlantic. Scientists have listened to recordings captured by Navy hydrophones off the coast of the Americas and heard singing whales that were singing in Europe. Oh, oh my God. Monica. So can a blue whale near the Americas have a conversation with a whale in Europe? Maybe not, but certainly over much longer distances than we think they're capable of. And doesn't that challenge our idea that they're the most solitary animal? Like when you think about the fact that they yes. could... If you watch a whale swimming on its own, is it on its own? Because it could well be in acoustic contact with other whales that are miles away that you can't see, but that it can definitely hear. It could oh be in a God, pod separated by hundreds of miles, and you guys could all be checking out what area's got the most plankton. And Totally. So what counts as a whale pod, right? We define it visually because we're mostly visual creatures. So if we see them together, that's a pod. Boom, That pod. doesn't have to be how it works to a whale. <laughs> the dog and the boat's going nuts. It smells the pod, right? But it doesn't have to be that way to the whales. Oh, my God. I love the notion that they're not solitary, perhaps. Does any other creature in the water, can they hear it too? And are they like, oh, these whales won't shut up? 
Pomorphite? That's a really good question. You go straight to how you'd be annoyed. That's how you anthropomorphize <laughs> these other animals. Well, yeah, I'd be like, oh my God, I don't want to listen to them talk all day. Yeah, like put your earbuds in. Yeah. It's like someone on speakerphone. Like a kind of nimby fish that's just <laughs> sitting there in its reef going, ugh. Yeah. It used to be so quiet before the whales moved in. Now, they probably have a hearing like ours where we they can't hear, hear it, it and they don't yeah. hear subsonic stuff. This is a somewhat sad note, but important one, I think. Between the fact that we have killed a ton of whales and that we have flooded the oceans with the noises of ships and other elements of man-made industry, whales would hear far fewer whales and be able to hear them over much smaller distances. And because most of these changes happened very recently, and because whales are long-lived, there will be whales for whom the ocean feels like a lonelier place. Yeah, they're in the terrorist interrogation room with the heavy metal plane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Oh, I don't like that. You're so right because those blue whales can live over 100 years, right? And this industry, Mm -hmm. oil rigs, internal combustion engine ships, that's 130 years old or whatever. In just this century, I'm going to mangle the stat, but I think this is roughly right. The amount of shipping noise has gone up by, I don't know, 30 times. It's deafening the conditions that we have inflicted upon the oceans. As one person said to me, it's like if we had as much noise as we've added to the ocean in recent decades in our lives, it would be a health and safety violation. Like OSHA would come in and tell you to put headphones on. Right. I'm going to try to put a positive spin on this. You hope that their brains are nimble enough to do what ours do and actually file noise into white noise. Like someone in New York City does not hear New York City. I hear it when I go there, but they don't. Right. I'll tell you a positive spin on this, right? This problem, sensory pollution, like light and noise that disturbs animals that we've added to the world. This is the entire subject of the final chapter of the book. And unlike a lot of ecological problems like plastics and toxins in the soil and the ocean, this is a problem we can fix immediately by switching things off. If we stop the production of plastics right now, plastics will still despoil the world for decades and centuries to come. If you stop sources of light and noise, they stop. So it is a problem that is fixable if we have the collective societal will to do so. And part of the argument for the book is to say, if we actually care about these creatures and if we understand the fact that their worlds are different to ours, we should make the effort to preserve those worlds and to respect their umwelts. Okay, so that's a big call, and there will be some segment of the population, the satisfizers or the maximizers, maximizers, will respond to them. And then there's people like me who are selfish and want to take care of me and then my family. So I'll just make an argument for them. We are trying, we have been trying with so much effort, we dedicate a huge portion of our population to understanding where we're at in time and space, where we're going. We actually need to expand our umwelt to understand where we live. And when we lose these creatures, they're the kind of disruptors in what we know. They teach us things about the world we're living in that we can't otherwise even imagine. I agree. Without them, we almost put an end to a lot of our own advancement. Growth, yeah. yeah. I know that doesn't appeal to you and that's antithetical to the book, but I will say for someone who's selfish and a shithead like me, it also selfishly behooves us to keep all of them around so we understand actually what we are living in because we're very limited. I think so too. For every species that dies, we lose a way of knowing the world. Yeah. And I think that's really tragic. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. I got to say, it does make me like really more interested. And now I'm feeling guilt that when I walk my dog and it tries to fucking smell, I'm like, come on. I'm not like, I, we got to go more than five feet on this walk or it wasn't a walk. Now I'm going to try to lock into their excitement about what they're, they're on Twitter. Give them some time. Yeah. They act like they're on Twitter. Like nothing in the world exists other than that fucking scent that's on that bush. Typo needs to get his energy out. So there'll be walks where you're like, we're walking. But at least once a day, he controls the pace of the walk on those walks we rarely do more than a block and it takes like half an hour to do the block but i think he's happier and if i'm bored i can listen to a podcast but often i just like watching him he's endlessly fascinated i think that dogs are happier and less anxious and just more dog-like he sniffs a lot and he noticeably does that compared to a lot of the other dogs that i know and i think it's because we've tried to encourage that from when we first got him i like that and i'm going to scale that up or transfer that to Likewise, when you have children, I make a real point to join them in their reality because it's drastically different. You know, like I'll get down where they're at and I'm looking, oh, fuck shit. Everything looks really big. That dresser is enormous. They're on shrooms, children. (laughs) You can kind of get a a contact high from them if you allow yourself to. It's it's hard to resist keeping them on some schedule where they're learning to walk, talk, read, shit in a toilet and all that. But sometimes, man, you get in that little guy zone. It's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Ed Young, this has been so fascinating. so fascinating. I want everyone to get your book. I'm going to read your book out loud to my children. It's called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. It's out June 22nd, so everyone get An Immense World, and I'm grateful for you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. This was a lot of fun. Go give your kids more shrooms. <laughs> yeah, at some point. Yeah. I had that correctly. They'll let us know when they're ready. Ed, great to meet you. Great luck with Thank the book. You. Thanks for your time. Take care. Bye. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. I did an emoji today. Ding, 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 duck, duck, goose emojis. Wait, what? What does that mean? Ding, 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 duck, duck, goose. You did That's an emoji? Yeah, like I did three bells and then two ducks and then oh, I had to do did? an egg because I didn't have any goo. Oh, on the post? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, if you could have any emoji, what would it be? I know right out of the gates, there's a face I always want that's just not there. Okay, what does it do? It's like, it's a sincere smile. Oh. You know, it's like the, the options I have generally, it's like a bunch of teeth. It's like too happy. Mm. And I want one that's just like, thank you. Oh, there's thank you. There is? Uh-huh, like as a face? You. Uh-huh, I'll show you. Are you going to send it to me? Sure, I'll send okay, it to you. Okay, send it my way. Yeah, I mean. Or this. But this is actually shy, in my opinion, shy. Yeah, I can't find an emoji with dreadlocks. You know, that's my version of oh appropriation. My gosh. Speaking of, I was in Austin and I went to the spot and my masseuse had dreadlocks. White guy. White woman. White woman. Yeah. Yeah. And gray? No, blonde. I mean, yeah, like white blonde. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think you can pull it off of your like gray, white hair. It was kind of woman. You know, like you just sleep outside too much. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Not really. Okay. Like hippie? Yeah, like hippie locks. Oh. Well, yeah, Yeah. I I assume she was hippie-ish, but she was great. She was. Yeah, it was a really nice, good massage. It was. Mm -hmm. Did she get weird with you at all? No. It's only the men. No, but it was, I did feel like it was really nurturing, which I like. like Anastasia. Yeah. Where is Anastasia? She has private clients now. She won't do us. What? Oh, that's an update? (laughs) 
Yeah, she was ignoring Molly and Eric for a long time. Yeah. And then I reached back out because Molly saw her in the parking lot at a whole. Oh my God, and it was awkward. She yeah. ran away. <laughs> she didn't, they didn't make contact, but Molly was like, I'm pretty sure that, because we thought maybe she moved or didn't make it through COVID. Right. That was our concern. Yes. And I texted Anastasia. Yeah. Hi, I think Molly said she might have seen you. I hope you're well. Oh. Are you st- still taking clients? Right. And then she was like, oh, hi, Monica. Basically, no. I mean, she was really, really nice about it, actually. But I think she has some permanents that hold her. Okay. Also, maybe Eric got weird with her. Tried to grind the um, skin off the bottom of her feet with his cheese grinder No, that would be flattering. (laughs) As he's done yours. That's right. And I'm flattered. (laughs) And you love it. (laughs) (laughs) No, anyway, it was really nurturing, and I really liked it. Oh, good. She did some really nice hair play. Speaking of healing, Dr. Goose, I... Had so much time in the medicinal waters of Barton Springs. Yes. I really dedicated nearly my whole trip. So this is an update. Okay. Because as people might recall, our last trip there, we were thrown out violently. That's right. Mm-hmm. Hostily, violently, pending lawsuit, class action. There were so many of us. <laughs> so I went completely by myself on Friday. Uh-huh. Like, Joy was supposed to come with me. And anyways, I was solo. And as I was walking up, I was like, I wonder if I'm banned. Ugh. Permanently from Barton Springs because we talk so much shit about them after our well, we talked hostile. the truth, right? We talk so much truth about them. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm here to say that they let me in, okay, and it was a glorious time. Great. I feel like the overall alert level was returned to DEFCON five. Like oh. they didn't feel like they were on high alert so much. It was okay. much more casual. Okay. First trip there, solo, three hours. Nice. I went in, I did 30 minutes of treading in the medicinal waters, 69 degrees all year long, cold, cold plunge. Mm. Felt great, got out, meditated in front of everyone, didn't care. Great. Well, there, you probably just fit right in. That's true. That is a safe place to do it. Legs cross, applesauce, like euphoric. Great. Then back in. Oh. 30 minutes. Back up. 10-minute nap. Oh, my. Laying there. The people watching, incredible. Oh, and then Erica Christensen, my TV sister, uh-huh. she joined me for the last half hour. Uh-huh. She shows up in a yoga outfit, yoga pants, and a sports bra. We hang out for a half an hour. She's like, let's swim. I'm like, that's the Erica I know. Jumps right in her yoga outfit. We swim right. around for a while. And then I dropped her at the hotel. Then we had the parenthood reunion. So fun. Really fun. Good. Then back to Barton Springs yesterday. Four hours. Wow. Medicinal, fully healed. I felt 105% healed. Great. Zero body pains. Proud of you. Let's talk about the other fun stuff. You did a a speaking engagement that was sold out. People were sneaking in, jumping (laughs) over fences. Well, it is a ding, ding, ding because there was a QA and a portion and one person asked if I've changed my mind about Barton Springs. Oh, really? Yeah. And I said no. Because you haven't been back. I haven't been back and- Oh, are you still a little sore about it? You oh, know, when I was big t- time. Oh, so when I was just telling these great ones, you were like, who cares? I don't like that place. No, I'm never, I'm Not never who, cares. who cares. I mean about Barton Springs. I love that you love it, okay. but I didn't need to go back. You don't ever want to go back? Until they build a cafe. All right. You know what I found out what it's all about? Okay. I mean, I still think it's kind of silly between you and I. Okay. And the world. <sighs> Apparently, there's a salamander that lives at the bottom of the springs. Okay. And if some food gets in there, that's not good for them. Also, if there's food, there's more ants, and I guess the ants can kill the salamander. So 
I guess when we find out that the very last salamander is gone, mm. it's going to be food trucks in a Bacchalia. <laughs> but I think they're still under the impression that there's a handful of salamanders there. Look, I'm not anti-environmentalist, but it no. seems a little crazy to me. Okay. A little crazy. And there's salamanders everywhere in the world. Why do they need them in that one area? They got to have those salamanders there. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to get some hate mail over this, but let's do it. Well, no, I mean... I guess it's kind of cute. There's like a mascot salamander that <laughs> well, they don't want to lose. They're underutilizing like, it. There should be a big picture of it so you fall in love with it when you walk exactly. in. Exactly. Oh, I'm willing oh, to not I eat. get it. Yeah, I just found, I've been to Barton Springs a hundred times. I just found out about the salamanders. Oh my God. Ding, ding, ding. Animals. Animals. Right. Okay, this is such a ding, ding, ding because. I'm starting to like animals more now. Uh-huh, you're warming to them. After this episode and after an episode we did today. Yes, which was very cool. Yeah. So I'm liking them more and more. But here's what I will never concede on. Humans have to be prioritized over the animal. Yep. I'm never going to let anyone tell me otherwise. Uh-huh. And there's babies there. We brought mm-hmm. babies who needed lunch. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. So I'm sorry. Either then you provide a cafe far away from the salamander. Uh-huh. I'm allowing that as an option. Okay. When you're mayor of Austin. Yep. Or you say, look, we have this salamander. It's really important to us. Please, you have to throw all your garbage. You know, you yeah. can make that clear or have the cafe, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> can't do both. Apparently it's a specific type of salamander that's endangered. The lungless salamander. Jeez, oh, they don't even have lungs. Talk about an animal that's too specific. Like, it only lives in Barton Springs. I'm sorry, you've made your environment way too small. You're not going to make it regardless of this. He's like you, though. He loves it there. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. He looks kind of like you. He does. Oh, my God. A huge nose and He's a got weak a chin. Dreadlocks. <laughs> Oh, my God. And you have kind of weak lungs because you're autoimmune. Yes. Oh, my God. I am going to save this thing. (laughs) No, but I was thinking about this in terms of our water issues right now. It's funny you bring that up because I was like, okay, we dammed up all these rivers. Yeah. One great thing about dams is they prevent all the fresh water from going out to sea. We don't have fresh water. Another huge benefit of dams, they create hydroelectric power so we don't have to use coal. And there was this huge movement tore down all these dams throughout the 90s and the 2000s, generally, I think, to protect the migration of fish, generally salmon, maybe some other kind. And of course, I value salmon and I value fish, but I was thinking, at what point does it tip? And you're like, well, I'm sorry, all of our fresh water is going out to sea and we have no power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, dams, are they going to come back? Well, we, we should try to find power other ways. For sure, but currently, it's the best one we have. All of Las Vegas was powered by the Hoover Dam at one point. There's nothing, you know, even nuclear, you got that tiny little risk of a meltdown, and you got the waste to contend with. Even with our friend Bill's system, there's going to be a little downside. Yeah. We got to circle back to an important story. Milk and honey, ding, 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 spa, beautiful spa. There's one in Los Angeles, too, if anyone wants to check it out. Okay. I lost my underwear. Oh, okay. I thought you, do you want to wrap up your speaking engagement? Because I heard it was wonderful. It was lovely. It was at the Commodore Perry mm-hmm. Estate, which is a hotel. Which I'm changing my name to Commodore. You didn't love that, but. No, I, I, I didn't. No, you, you didn't like it. Why? And then I said, well, I'll have earned mine. No, you said, oh, you sound like, I know exactly what you said. You said, oh. you sound like. Yep. Nexium. What's his name? Nexium guy. Keith, Keith Rainier. 
Yeah, because he's the, the vanguard. vanguard, so it sounded similar. Mm-hmm. But I'm still fine with you doing that. But you know it's just I, you also have megalith. It's like there's so many. I know. I always want to evolve. Dan Gaines is also my official name on my birth certificate now. Uh, 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 Dan Gaines, Commodore Dan Gaines, <laughs> megalith. Beefoss. <laughs> Oh, no, Beef House is the place. That's the okay, place, yeah. Yeah, yeah, House of Beef. So, And no one has to call me these names. They're just my names. I know, but I want to call you what you want to be called, and then I'm just getting an influx of info, and it's hard for me. But you're attracted to novel things, as I am. I am. And I understand the times are changing, and I have to adapt. Ever-evolving. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, <laughs> anywho... So I lost my underwear. But this is what happened. Anything uh, more on the speaking oh, engagement? Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to applaud you. Thank you. You yeah. don't need to do that. It was really lovely. A bunch of beautiful arm cherries. Yep. Incredible, lovely people, of course. I got a sense in Austin this weekend that that's probably our most saturated market. I don't think I, I've ever been stopped as frequently as I was this last four days. There was so much like... Rubbernecking? For Kristen. Oh, okay. So much. Way more than I normally yeah. experience with her. One element of it, yes. So um, when we first landed, it was a little overwhelming because because it was ATX, it's a television festival. A lot of people come as tourists mm-hmm. to see television things right. and bump into television people. They've brought me- memorabilia. Yep. Everyone's got cameras. Uh-huh. So yeah, when we first landed, I was like, ooh, it's a little hot. You know, like this is a little stifling. And then as I got away from that, venue in that event, I think it eased up a bit. Also, when we got to the airport, so you guys, you and Kristen landed hours before me and Molly landed. Yeah. We send the escalators and then there's like a group of people there and they wanted to take a picture and one of them said, I'm a cherry. And okay. I was like, mm, mm. okay, I, I got a little like, <laughs> I don't, that's not what they're called. Uh, but okay. That's not what we're called. Yeah, but she knew my name, so I was like, okay. And mm-hmm. then she's like, can I get a picture? And I was like, sure. And then uh, there was a big group, and then they all wanted pictures. And then mm-hmm. one of them did say they came to our show, so I was like, okay. They, You know, I, I this is so weird. I never feel this, but I was like, something's weird here. Because mm-hmm. I love it when people come up to us. But this one felt weird and was like everyone in the group was taking their turn. But I could tell most of them didn't know. They just, they, just they, wanted- rec- uh, they knew you were famous on some level and they wanted to. And then one of the people was like, we saw Dax here earlier. And I was like, you saw Dax here two and a half hours ago and you're still standing at the end mm-hmm. of the escalator. So then I was like, oh, you're just like here to catch people coming off the because escalator. Because of ATX. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you recognize you were landing into ATX. There's not normally a gaggle of people gathered at the bottom oh, of the escalator true. when you fly to Austin. It, it was unique because was of the weird. festival. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that part was weird. <clears throat> Back to my underwear. Underwear. Well, first of all, yeah, talk was and beautiful, lovely. Got to talk to so many arm cherries after they came up and chatted. They're all so nice. And Kelly, shout out Kelly Kraus. She moderated and she was so fun and cool. Any guys come? Uh huh. Okay, a few did. And actually, one of them, shout out, was the creator or in the family of the Siete Foods. Oh, the the, the grain-free chips. Yes, and we love that. And Because yeah. he was like, we sponsored you guys. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. And that's a delicious product. Yeah, was he single? Like, did he come to... I don't know, he was by himself. Oh my God. Did any guys try to get your number? <laughs> no. Okay. So anyway... That's going backwards in time. Milk and honey. Okay. That's a spa spot. Yeah. Okay. 
One of our party, Erica, her massage was a half hour before Molly and I's. Oh, God, I thought you meant a half hour long massage. No, never. What's the point of that? (laughs) That's cock tease. So she went a half hour before us, and we had some time to kill, obviously. Molly was like, is this a steamer? And it was a shower with a steamer in it. Okay. A steam shower, if you will. We were like, we can just go stand at it and get steamy. Yeah. So then we put our towels on because if you know, if you've been in the steamer, everything gets very wet. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to be there standing there naked because it wasn't like a steam room. There's no seats or yes, anything. Yes, we were just standing there. Do you but, think you all would have got naked if there were seats? Probably, I probably still would have worn a towel. Okay. Anyway, we had robes on at that point, and we were so arrogant that we took off our robes and underwear, and we just put it, we just put it on the couch. Okay. The communal couch. Okay. That was really stupid. I have so much regret around that. Yeah. Do you want to make an official amends to the milk and honey? Yes. Okay. I'm really sorry yeah. I did I'm that. I'm disgusted with myself. I'm a bad person. Is that part of the yeah, you always got to say I'm a piece of shit. Okay, I, don't I don't deserve love. I, I'm not going <laughs> to say that. But I do think it was a very arrogant, bad, hmm. self-obsessed yeah. piece of entitled. shit. It was very entitled. Yeah. To be fair to us, we were the only people in there at the time. Mm-hmm. So we got false security. Mm-hmm. We went into the steam. It wasn't very steamy. Uh, okay. and so, Do you guys all feel awkward once you're in there with not much steam? It was steam? just us two. And we were like. Oh, it was just you and Molly? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because Erica had already gone in. Kristen hadn't come yet. Okay. So just us two. So then we were just standing there kind of chatting. And I was like, eh, we should get out. So then we come out. And of course, the robes are gone. They've been cleaned up by the wonderful staff at Milk mm-hmm. and Honey. And our underwear is gone. Oh, boy. And then we are panicking. Panty Akeem. <laughs> Mainly Molly because she's wearing jean shorts that day. With a very denim-y gusset. A grundle. A denim grundle. So it's going to be denim on labia. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, jean shorts. Yeah. Daisy Dukes. Especially girl. Well, they weren't like <clears throat> up her butt. But I know. I'm just I'm excited about this story. <laughs> so just, she's in Daisy Dukes. You're in a. I was in a long dress. Ne- uh, negligee? I was in a long dress. And so I was like, I'm just going to not wear underwear under this dress. Yeah. But she couldn't take that route because of the jean shorts. Oh, so she was really upset. Yeah. So then we had to go find someone and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, but we left our <laughs> underwear. And we're like, we'll go look for it. Like, we we don't want you guys to be like yeah, tugging around with, this. with our yeah. old dirty underwear. Uh-huh. Hanky Panky is very good brand, very yeah. trusted. <laughs> so then this woman comes out and she's like kind of looking flustered and she was like, Was it you guys who? And we were like, Yeah, we're so sorry. And she was like, Looked everywhere and like, I don't, I think they must already be in the wash. Okay. And Molly was like, well, then maybe we could get it after. The service. And, uh, yes. And she was like, yes, absolutely. And that mm. drama's done. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. That was we a goofy mix Lost our underwear. Yeah. So silly. Duck, duck, goose. <laughs> we go. We have our nurturing massages. Uh-huh. Come out. And we're like, well, what do we, we have to find that lady. Yeah. We're kind of looking. We don't see. And then Molly. Molly's going to be raw dog and some daisy <laughs> She dukes. is like really panicky. Yeah, I yeah, tell. And yeah. I don't want to laugh at her. Right. But it was our fault. Yeah. So then she goes and finds a staff member and she was like, Oh, um, we gave them to someone. <laughs> some dudes. Some dudes in cowboy hats. 
She said, oh, in town no, for ATX. We, we thought to the right people, but we, we gave them to someone already. And we were like, Who just received what? under Guesses. CSA food guys? <laughs> oh, ding, ding. There were no men in there. Dong, dong, dong. Mm. <laughs> no. She was like, well, they're in a service. The person. Oh, who grabbed the. Okay, yes. The okay. My guess is they were in a bag or something. Who and she, the person was like, here's, here's what you left. And then didn't open it to see that it was random undies. Mm-hmm. And then we couldn't wait an hour. Right. So then we left. We both didn't have underwear. Molly was a trooper. Um, <laughs> it was 95 degrees. Oh. Yeah. And we were walking, doing a 20-minute walk. Uh, but oh, then- my. You had a 20-minute walk ahead of you with these Daisy Dukes. That's now. right. Oh, boy. So- Did she, like, drop a button and let them sag? She didn't. Oh, she warm tight, <laughs> high and tight. But no. But then we stopped for breakfast tacos which were so delicious, and we were happened to be close to your hotel, so Kristen ran in and brought undies for the both of us. But I decided to opt out. Good for you, yeah. Texas. That's right. Let it air out. I did. So anyway, that's, that's, <laughs> that's that. The, that's the underwear caper of 2022. Uh-huh. Last thing. Okay. Went out on the boat. Oh, yeah. Angie's now a captain. Your Ange, friend, Ange. Angie Grimalius. Uh, well, that's not her last name anymore because she's married. But, um, yeah, she's become a boat captain, and she gets to get a boat twice a month. And so we went out, her, Rory, Joy, Kristen, and I. Yep. And it was heaven on earth. I mean, but what a place. It's just such a place. Also, I got to throw out there, four solid straight days with Joy. Yeah. God damn it, did we have fun. I bet. Oh, did we have fun. That's a fun reunion. Yes. Mm, this was kind of fun. Last thing. We talk about Larry Trailing so much on here, right? Uh, Josh Brolin episode, he was heavily talked about. Yeah. So we were in the hotel lobby having drinks. I was having a tea, started with a chamomile, switched to mint. Love mint. Anyways, a couple arm cherries there. Uh, and one of the gals, she was telling me that she loves the show, blah, blah, blah. I listen to every single episode. And I go, oh, my God. Have you heard me talk about Larry Trailing a bunch of times? She's like, oh, my God, yeah, so many times. I'm like, there he is, because I was with Larry. Yeah. So Larry got to get some fandom from the cherries, too. Well, that's fun, the cherries. I you, know, now you I'm going to use Don't it. do okay. that. <laughs> It'll be too hard for me to discern. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's fun. It was really he fun. He was very cute. I got to meet him for the first time Yes. As well. Okay. You said we talked to 55 guests in closets, but I didn't want to go back. How could you? Yeah. I mean, I could. But definitely more than 10. Yeah. Oh, one one comes to mind right now. Remember how spectacular J.B. Smoove's closet oh, was? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. The proverb with the elephant in the room. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm going to read it. Indian in origin? Well, Rumi, a, a Persian poet. Oh, Persian. But like, like 13th century. Okay, great. Yeah. Wait, this says by Julia Watkins. That doesn't sound very Persian to me. Daily readings of the 13th century Persian poet as translated. Okay, ready? One by one, we go in the dark and come out, saying how we experience the animal. One of us happens to touch the trunk, a water pipe kind of creature. Mm. Another, the ear, a very strong, always moving back and forth fan animal. Another, the leg. I find it still, like a column on a temple. Another touches the curved back, a leathery throne. Another, the cleverest, feels the tusk, a rounded sword made of porcelain. He is proud of his description. Each of us touches one place and understands the whole that way. The palm and the fingers feeling in the dark are how the senses explore the reality of the elephant. If each of us held a candle there, and if we went in together, we could see it. Mm. He uses a story as an example of the limits of individual perception. Right. It's more of a tale of uh, group unity, group 
participation. It's nice. It is. What we can accomplish as a team. Make the load lighter. Make the elephant whole. Make the elephant whole. They should just condense the whole thing to that. You know the old proverb, make make an elephant whole. Like instead of Julia Watkins. Do you think she got your undies? Oh, my God. Could be. Maybe. She felt in the bag, and she (laughs) thought, oh, a very soft cloth to wipe off after my service. Oh, gross. She's going to use it to wipe? No, because once she pulls it out in light, it was handed to her in the dark. Right. She put her hand in. She was with a friend. Two bags were just administered. Oh. And uh, Kelly Wandick went, went, Watkins. Julia Watkins. Julia Watkins. (laughs) She put her hand in in the dark, Uh and she said, oh, it's a refreshing cloth to get the oil off my face after the service. And then her friend, Becky Beinstein, she put her hand in and said, ooh, it's a thin, she's holding the gusset. What does she think? (laughs) Oh, it's a floss for our Ah! teeth after the service. (laughs) And then they found out in the locker room with light that they were Hundle Grundles. (laughs) Dirty Grundies. You know the panty in the spa proverb, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sharks can smell blood from three miles away is what you said. He didn't like that. Yeah, because it's overblown. Okay. Um, A lot of people say like a quarter of a mile. Okay. Still gray. 1,320 feet. That's a long (gasps) way to smell blood. This is the problem with exaggeration. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like that's not very far. No. But it is. It's very far. Mm -hmm. That's another proverb. That was in a book. That bums me out. I read that to my child the night before. Really? Oh, she's full of so much disinformation. <laughs> Hopefully, with her sister's combined perspective, they can get a whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. Proverb, Rumi, Monica, Julia. Spa panty proverb. <laughs> How do sounds travel through water? Hmm. Okay, this is a condensed answer. Okay. Obviously, I'm sure it's way more technical. When underwater objects vibrate, they create sound pressure waves that alternately compress and decompress the water molecules as a sound wave travels through the sea. Sound waves radiate in all directions away from the source like ripples on the surface of a pond. Why is blood hot? This came up a lot today in our today's interview. Ding, ding, ding. Duck, duck, goose. Easter egg. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. If someone listening got your pantaloon... Do you want it returned to you? Like, if it so happens that someone knows someone, is like, oh my God, I think Karen was just telling me she got a free uh, pair of used underwear at the spa. <laughs> like, you know, honey and milk's handing out free old y- news, honey. <laughs> <laughs> if that happened, do you, do you guys want these old skanky drawers? I don't. I cannot speak for Molly. She had a much different experience than me. Okay. So, if you have, well, what were the colors so they know which one's Mine the male? Mine was more of a nude. I don't know what color hers was, but um, you can keep the nudish panky okay. panky. Okay. Whatever the other one is, return it. We'll get it back to its yeah, rightful owner. That's right. Send your unmentionables to the P.O. box. Yes, please. Um, oh, no. Yeah. No. Yes. No. Yeah. Dax, yeah. no. Yeah. Why? Now you're asking people to send No, I'm not. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> no. I'm just saying. Please don't send us your underwear. Anyways, if you're in the audience, send your unmentionables to the PO box. (laughs) Okay, why is blood hot? Metabolism, basically. Mm. Body heat is generated by metabolism. 
chemical reaction cells used to break down glucose and water and carbon dioxide and in so generate ATP, a high energy compound used to power other cellular processes. Yeah, ATP. Oh, we talk for a second about synesthesia where you hear, you can like hear music. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. People can hear music? I know. What animals can Some hear Some people me- can hear music. It's oh really God. rare. No, but you can- Taste numbers. And- when you experience one of your senses through another. Ooh. Now, I think I had it in middle school and below. I think I've told you this. I had like a little fetish a little bit about when teachers would say colors. Oh, I do recall this. What would happen? Like when they'd say like- Everyone take out a sheet of blue construction paper. Mm. Like, I got, like, PQs. Oh, my God. But only when it was the color. Like, get out your green folder. Oh, my goodness. So I have it Yeah. with You're, my, You get triggered by your hearing, in this case, combined well, with no, your visual representation. Well, no, but it's only with color. Of, I know, but hearing the word color, right? It's not yeah. seeing it. You're hearing the word color, uh-huh. but then you're getting nerve blasts yeah. in your Q, no, in your P. That's right, but it was only if it was a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And send all your undies in. uh, (laughs) Go for a long jog and just pull them out, put them in a Ziploc. Joy did not know PQs. She was delighted with your PQs. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, she loved it. Um, Do you have any synesthesia moments? I don't think so. Not that I can think of. I wish. That sounds great. I know. If I get a DQ, Dairy Queen. You love it. You love from hearing, Dairy Queen. From hearing my teacher talk about <laughs> the Roy G. Biv. You know, that was the first time I knew something was like off because I asked my friend, this happens to me. And she uh, was like, what? You're a weirdo. Oh, but she's, no. No, no, no. She's my best friend. Okay. She found it endearing, but yeah. definitely qualified me as a weirdo. Was she jealous like I am? I don't think so. I okay. think she was pretty happy to be on her normal course. Okay. I mean, don't most people want more PQs than less PQs? I would, I hope, I mean, yeah. yeah, I do. DQs, PQs. See, but that's like if every time you hear the lottery, you get an erection. I'd love it. I will say for women, it's probably easier to handle. To deal with, yeah. Yeah, you can just experience the cue. Listen, when you're a young man and you're in school, you get fucking raging boners out of nowhere. It's not even sexually, right? Did you get them? Yeah, the Texas tuck that you had to do yeah. in gym class. Okay, so my thing would be, I'd be sitting at my desk and I would have a raging boner. And I would think, like, I got to push this. I would push it down. Yeah. Thinking I could get it to go away. But then that kind of was stimulating and make it worse. And then I got to ignore it. I mean, it was a thing you had to contend with. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have that. Writing stuff. DQs. Um, I don't like that as much. <laughs> Why not? It's like encroaching on PQ. Like that's a female. We want to like let Empower. that have space. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let it have some space. Okay. <laughs> At some point, make one up so I can use it. Okay. How about just regular horniness? Okay. Which is what you get all the time. That's right. Dime a dozen. DQ just sounds so stupid, like a soft ice cream cone. That's why I like it. Is yeah. it's like not because um, most male stuff is just scary. DQ already has its place in the armchair world. That's true. Okay. 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 Noise, shipping noise. Between World War II and 2008, the global number of ships rose by a factor of 3.5 and the total gross tonnage by a factor 10. Okay. Also, we went from sailing and making no noise to steam-powered and then internal combustion and diesel-electric. A lot of noise. And it's disrupting our (laughs) oceans. It makes me sad that the blue whales 
They can't hear each other anymore. Yeah. Well, we well, don't, we know, don't that, know, but that's <laughs> the worst case. We think. Like, save the blue so whale sad. for sure. But the three salamanders. Okay, but we already said that's know. like you, we said. Well, you are looking a little pink. I am? Yeah, from the sun. Yeah, well, I got, I, I'm telling you, my arms are so dark. I told Joy my goal was to play brother and sister in a movie. I'm not stopping till we play brother and sister. You can't say that. She liked it. It won't be blackface because I'll actually be that dark. But are you going to play a black person? No, I'm just brother and sister. We're playing a persons that don't exist yet. It's in the future. Like a, a new thing. Like on Mars? Could no, it be it's, on Mars? It's in, maybe that does different stuff to melanin. It, melanin. Yeah. It's, it's set in Anchorage, Alaska, because it's like deep into global warming. It's the only place that's cool okay. enough. And then you just don't know what anyone is. Colorblind. Right. Post-racial. Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. No, we're not. Um, that's it. <clears throat> All right. All right. Love Bye. you. Bye.